My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 12 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with author, founder of the Center for Consciousness Medicine, and psychedelic pioneer, François Bourzat. And I think that the appropriation is a topic that we, we take it a bit out of context. It's important to do cleansing. It's important to do offering. It's important to do prayers. It's important to do an altar. That belongs everywhere, right? And the indigenous people, what I'm, what I'm hearing from them is, do that, you do that. You learn from us the value of calling directions or blessing a room or calling the sun in the morning or you know, putting flowers on your altar. You learn from us that and then you do it because it serves you, it serves your life, it helps you. It reminds you of the divine. We're teaching you about the sacred and you have it. It's not, the sacred doesn't belong to us. And these rituals are universal. They belong to the human family. And I really hope that we stay curious and we keep learning from one another and we keep listening to ideas we don't know anything about. Even if we think they are really negative or really uh, oppositional to what we stand for, to stay in a spirit of curiosity and to not create opposition, not out of conflict avoidance, but more in staying in the spirit of oneness. All I'll say is that Francois is a total legend in the psychedelic space. I just love how much people love her. In episode number 10, featuring Charlotte and Dre from the Sabina Project, I mentioned Francois's name and Dre was like, hold up, pause the discussion. I need to profess my love for this woman. And this just seems to be the general reaction I get from people who know her. Francois Boulzat is the author of Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. And she has quite the incredible life story, from a traumatic near-death experience she had in Thailand many years ago that led her on a path of healing. And she's now been leading ceremonies with sacred mushrooms for over 30 years. And I highly recommend her book, which I've read twice now, and it really lays out her framework for navigating expanded states of consciousness and also offers a lot of insight around plant medicine integration as well. And so I'll post a link to her book in the show notes. And as we'll talk about in this interview, Francois has played a supportive role in the passing of Measure 109 in Oregon State, legalizing the use of psilocybin by professionals for therapeutic purposes. And needless to say, the passing of Measure 109 in Oregon and the decrim movement in general is completely changing the name of the game for the future of psychedelics. And so Francois is also the founder of the Center for Consciousness Medicine, and she is directly involved in creating the facilitator training programs that professionals in Oregon will have to go through in order to be, quote unquote, certified to administer psilocybin legally. And so we'll talk all about this and so much more in this conversation. And at the end of this episode, I'll be leaving you with a song by a dear medicine brother, Chad Wilkins, called Sing for the Earth. And if you haven't yet received my playlist that feature wonderful musicians such as Chad Wilkins for psychedelic journeys and beyond, I also use these playlists for my microdosing morning rituals, you can swipe that along with my free eight-day microdosing course at livefreelauraD.com. 
And if you are a musician or you know of a talented musician of the inspirational variety, please send some links my way and contact me through my website. Once again, livefreelauraD.com, and I'll be more than happy to tune in. Okay, without any further ado, here's my conversation with psychedelic pioneer François Bourzat. Well, aloha, François. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So I've read your book, Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth a couple of times at this point. And I, I really just so appreciate your perspective, your knowledge, and your wisdom. And I just want to start this conversation by saying thank you for your life's work, really, and your dedication to this path and for being a mentor to so many people in the psychedelic space. Thank you. Yes, it's been uh, wonderful to actually gather all these thoughts and wisdom and experience and offer them to the field, to the movement at, at large. And it's been uh, not, not surprisingly, but to me, it was a little bit surprising to see how uh, people I respect, like Rick Doblin or Fadiman or Ralph Metzner, but Ralph was a friend, so that's different, but were really supportive and, and endorsing my words. And so it's been wonderful to contribute and feel part of a, a group of elders in this field. So yes. Mm, yes. Mm -hmm. And we are living during what feels like an incredibly pivotal moment in the psychedelic movement. And I would love to start by inviting you to share an overview of what's happening in Oregon right now, especially, you know, with Measure 109 and why this is so significant, especially right now, and what this means for the future of psychedelic therapy. This is a wonderful initiative I was invited on, on board of, um, by uh, Tom and Sherry Eckert. Um, they decided five years ago to um, spearhead this initiative of trying to get a legal access to um, mushroom therapy or mushroom experiences for people in their state of Oregon. And I was invited to be on the campaign board with Paul Stamets and Robin Carhart Harris from London and uh, Mark Aiden from MAPS Canada and, uh, of course, Tom and Sherry and myself. Um, there was a lot of support from David Bronner. There was a lot of support from various funders to get the campaign um, going, um, especially, you know, gathering the votes in the midst of COVID. That was really quite a feat to <clears throat> be able to achieve that. Um, and the fact that it uh, was on the ballot was already a, an amazing signal of people wanting that. I mean, of course, a lot of work went into the campaign, but still. And when it passed, I was in Oregon for that. I, I flew to Oregon, to Portland, to celebrate the passing of the initiative. Um, of course, we were not sure it would pass, but it was really wonderful being there with the, with the team. And we had a lot of um, campaign meetings and dialogues and with the legal uh, advisor, um, Graham Boyd, and wonderful people. Um, David Bronner was there every time to uh, brainstorm. And the fact that this initiative passed is really um, communicating that there is a place for mushroom experiences in between the scientific research that goes on uh, in John Hopkins and Imperial College and NYU and various uh, universities and medical centers and a 
uh, how could I say, a, a sort of decree nature, free access, get your mushroom, drop your mushrooms and, and, and hope for the best. I think there is a, a, a middle ground that this initiative offers for people to have access to um, well-prepared, well-supported and well-integrated experiences with sacred mushrooms. And the... Um, that that's that, that is a strong signal, and just not just around quote unquote treatments, but approaches uh, that can um, alleviate suffering, that can help people expand their consciousness, and uh, create more peace in their inner life and uh, in the life of their you know family and community. So, what's happening right now after the vote uh, was a success <clears throat> is that. There is now two years, there are two years of implementation, which means that there is a group of us uh, working together with different organizations to uh, create or suggest to the Oregon Health Administrations the criteria for the training of the facilitators that will dispense this uh, offering of mushroom uh, experiences. So we are designing curriculum uh, together with, like I said, a few other entities, uh, my, my organization, my group, uh, Center for Consciousness Medicine, but also some other wonderful people. Uh, so it's a collaborative uh, effort and an alliance of sorts that we want to um, present to the Oregon Health Administration as a way of presenting a, a serious high standard of care and education uh, to the uh, advisory board of the administration to secure that this initiative would be rolled out safely, diligently, carefully, um, and, and with a well-educated uh, body of facilitators. Wonderful. And will anyone be able to partake in that facilitation training, or do you need to have a background as a nurse or a psychologist or a therapist? I think anybody will be able to access the training um, there will be a foundational knowledge or education regarding trauma, regarding psychological processes, regarding grief, regarding, you know, the baseline of what someone should know to be able to address some situations that may come in during the experience. And then what we have uh, suggested or what we will suggest um, is a, a system of, of quote-unquote triage, meaning someone who wants to apply to have an experience would be, depending on their intake and their intention and why they come to this um, facilitation, will be then oriented towards someone who is more uh, inclined to be a chaplain or someone who is more inclined to be a therapist or trauma therapist or psychiatrist or <clears throat> an addiction specialist. or So there will be a variety of, of angles and roads for anybody to be uh, directed into. So someone who is very highly traumatized and would need some psychological skilled support would mm -hmm. not be oriented towards a chaplain that might be more uh, equipped to deal with the issue of grief or other spiritual dimension uh, brought into this experience. So I think that the, 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 this triage system, so to speak, is, uh, is a way to, um, to, to optimize the care also. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's a two-year rollout period where you are working with a group of people to formulate that. And how long do you think the training is going to be for people to immerse themselves in before they're quote-unquote qualified or certified to hold space as mm-hmm. a facilitator? Mm-hmm. So um, we, we are discussing this. Uh, the trainings are possibly going to start this summer. Uh, in order to have time to train people over a year, we want people to have access to some experiences themselves before they are going to be equipped to actually uh, sit for people or facilitate these processes. So because the actual permission to um, ingest medicine uh, will be only authorized uh, January 2023, uh, we are debating um, uh, if the students uh, would be waiting for that green light to have their own practical experiences, their sort of practicum phase, or if they would maybe travel to a place where um, the practice of mushroom is not illegal, like the Netherlands or Jamaica, mm-hmm. uh, possibly Canada, but we're not sure yet, <clears throat> and, then, and then have their practicum phase of training um, and be ready before January tw- uh, 2023. So, we're not exactly sure how that's going to pan out, real, but um, we're, we're, we're working diligently on making sure that people can apply to training, but we need to get our, all our ducks in a row and make sure the training is well designed and well um, complete, you know, and holds. And then we have to submit this training curriculum to the Oregon Health Administration to see if they would accept it and find it uh, adequate, which I'm, I believe, I want to believe they would find it well done because we are putting a lot of attention and, and skill into it and they don't really know what to suggest. So they're leaning into this uh, sort of advisory mm-hmm. um, group to, um, to get suggestions of, mm-hmm. of, of good practice. So Measure 109 basically states that these certified practitioners, it will be legal for only people who go through this particular training program to legally administer psilocybin. Correct. Okay. Just to clarify that. There will be licensures. There will be licensures. So people will go through the facilitation, the training program for facilitators in one organization or the other. We are few of us. And then there will be a sort of a licensure, like, a, you know, a test, so to speak, right? They would have, um, you know, report from their trainer and they will all have a mentor to supervise their work or consult. Uh, and then they will have a licensure exam and they will have a license to uh, be able to practice this work. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's just so amazing that you're working on the state level. It's, it's yes. really amazing. I mean, it's it's actually remarkable. And and why why do you think it's happening now? I think there is a a hunger for more freedom and more access. I mean, the decree movement, as you well know, mm-hmm. is very very active and very uh, successful in um, changing the the landscape of access, mm-hmm. right? Or at least decriminalization, which is a big piece of of this and. You know, this gentleman who was um, uh, our legal advisor in, in Oregon and is also my legal advisor in my work, uh, Graham Boyd, is, is, has been the legal advisor for all these um, motions in different states. Um, he's been working diligently on making sure things pass, mostly because 
it reduces incarcerations. Mm -hmm. And it, of course, there is a way to have people have more like civil liberty and, and freedom to uh, consume what they want to consume, just like they drink alcohol. Well, they can take something else. It's not more dangerous, possibly less dangerous. So, uh, but mostly it reduces incarceration, especially of people of color. Mm -hmm. So there's a great uh, social scene here that is being uh, changed uh, through the decree movement and through the, this legalization with 109 in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And that creates a model for other states to follow suit as well. So we can imagine that, um, I don't know, maybe California or maybe Hawaii or maybe Vermont or other states that are fairly progressive uh, might see the moment where the, the, the ballot can can move that forward. I mean, there's also uh, ways to work with the, the Supreme Court of the state or not necessarily through an electoral vote, but also um, through uh, city councils and such mm -hmm. and state councils. So there's different ways. But I think the, the idea is that people are want, they're hearing enough about the research that is taking place successfully and by Michael Pollan's book and all mm -hmm. this different uh, ways of communicating the success of these approaches that they want to have access to it and they want to have a liberty in ver in safe way in safe care to uh, to have these experiences. I don't want it to be reserved for the people who are so ill with depression and suicidal mm -hmm. ideation or people who are so sick with PTSD or so sick with uh, anxiety that they can function. A lot of people have some depression, some anxiety, or some trauma, and they function so they don't qualify for the studies mm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. And the studies are very, very, very limited. I mean, mm -hmm. this is, I mean, I'm doing a study, I'm part of a consulting, I'm consulting for a study in Los Angeles that is FDA-approved study with psilocybin. And, you know, it's going to be a very limited amount of uh, subjects and, and subjects that qualify with a very, very... Um, uh, you know, lim limited, limited amount of, uh, of, of access really. Mm -hmm. And so what do you foresee some of the greatest challenges or what are you paying attention to, uh, in terms of, of the drawbacks of legalization? Well, the measure in Oregon is, is drafted in such a way that it doesn't become a cannabis industry like it was in mm -hmm. other States mm -hmm. where cannabis industry came in because cannabis became legal. It's not, it's not drafted the same way. I don't know exactly. I, I, I'm not a legal expert to tell you the difference in the actual write-up of the uh, initiative, but it's it's not about creating a big industry that would monopolize an industry of growing mushroom and mm -hmm. and and monopolizing the distribution. Mm -hmm. That the, the motion, the, the initiative is written in such a way that it's really it really remains a an accessible. Uh, idea or, or experience, so it's different. It's different from 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 the cannabis, but that would be a big drawback. That would be a big drawback if it would become such an industry like the cannabis. But it's not done that way. So I think that you know other states might look at um, the initiative with with you know very uh, astute eyes to make sure that if they want to do that, it it remains um, not an open door to the big industry like mm -hmm. in cannabis. Did. And how accessible is this therapy going to be for um, for lower income families? I mean, especially what we're seeing with ketamine, you know, one session, it's it's pretty expensive to receive treatment. 
And so I'm curious, you know, how accessible are these medicines going to be? Is the state going to help fund or offer, you know, healthcare support for receiving these treatments? Yes. So we are looking at that. This is not in my, how could I say, this is not in my skill to navigate um, the budget and the rollout financially and how the healthcare system on the state level will uh, be able to subside uh, or through donation maybe, or uh, the retreat centers would be uh, from ethical perspective, which is something we write into our um, training, mm-hmm. our ethical aspect of our training to make sure that this, um, uh, this rollout is also accessible for free or accessible for very low cost cost to some people who uh, deserve the treatment like everybody else, but can't pay. And that could be a sliding scale or there could be some different structure of payment. So uh, people pay according to their means as well. Mm-hmm. So we have to we have to see what, you know, different structures, different organizations will run that differently. And we can't impose an ethical um, practice that, like that, you know, mm-hmm. financially, but it will be highly, uh, it will create a culture where that is... Um, uh, addressed or mm-hmm. at least announced huh? so personally i mean i i'm i'm intending in my organization to uh, run some trainings and also of course impart that kind of um, ethical concern and accessibility concern and mm-hmm. uh, so the issue of diversity and accessibility is really part of what i will be teaching the facilitator uh, facilitators and then and then if we if we do open which we might open some a retreat center or treatment center. I don't know exactly what to call uh, those places, but as we are um, rolling out our own um, uh, facilitation process, that it's part of you know my angle to make sure that people who come to the door are, are served, you know, regardless of their mm-hmm. of their means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of the other ethical pieces that are really at the forefront that you guys are discussing right now in terms of bringing this training and formulating this training, you know, staying connected to an indigenous lineage? Is that at the forefront of a concern that you guys have? What, What are some of the ethical pieces that you're really addressing right now? Well, as you see in my book, I mean, my my entire background is about indigenous knowledge and wisdom, and that's how uh, I got educated, so to speak, mm-hmm. and immersed into <clears throat> that culture of um, this work as it has been conducted in Mexico. Um, and that's how I came into this work. So for me, it's intrinsic to what I know. I cannot separate what I would tell people how to run a session and and where it's coming from this is totally goes together i cannot it's part of my training right my training talks about lineage it talks about acknowledgement about respect about reciprocity about you know naming the names of the teachers who have held this tradition before us um what do we give back how do we um uh, acknowledge their wisdom and how do we weave their wisdom or their angle of doing this work into our approach now in the more industrialized world. So this is a lot of what I'm all about, you know, um, being sort of a bridge or sort of a translator without, you know, claiming that I'm them. I'm not an indigenous person, but my immersion into that culture has, has really um, impacted me to really include that voice into my teachings. And mm. I'm not sure it's the same for other organizations who don't have quite a, a foot and a root system into the indigenous culture like I do. 
but it doesn't mean they don't um, suddenly don't don't honor and respect and talk mm-hmm. about that. So in the training we are developing, we are including uh, a portion on reciprocity and respect of the indigenous tradition and naming w- what they did. And in my suddenly in my version of the training, I will very much. Um, name and weave all these different cosmology and practices and intelligence that the uh, indigenous culture and model has taught me. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, this this topic of cultural appropriation, because on the one hand, it's like if I'm enacting a, a ritual or a practice that comes from another culture, and let's say it was passed down through various people and then arrived to me, by enacting that, you know, is that culturally appropriating and is it, or is it more appropriate for me to cultivate my own practice that's totally new? But then the argument against that is that I'm not carrying a lineage or I'm not honoring a lineage. So it seems like there's this very strong catch 22 going on with the the cultural appropriation um, remarks and comments that get made and, you know, arguments in the space around this. So I'm curious your perspective on that. Mm-hmm. Well, my perspective is a dialogue that I have with my uh, indigenous friends in Mexico who carry this tradition. And, and I asked them, I said, so what, do I have permission to replicate your, your, your ritual? Do I have permission? Do I have your blessing? What do you feel about me doing the gesture or the objects of the altar or the way you deal with the cleansing or the offering of the you know, the way you deal with, <laughs> the way you smoke the room, the way you put the flowers, the way you serve the, me- the medicine, the way you, you know, do I, ha- can I do that? Can I do all this? And they look at me and they say, well, how would you do it otherwise? Hmm. So it's very interesting, you know, the appropriation is a Western, is a, is a kind of a, is our concern, which is valid to be politically aware and respectful and not steal and claim that it's ours. But, you know, when my teacher came to California and we were doing an offering one morning here and she said, well, what do you do your offerings? And I said, well, you know, it was really at the beginning of my connection with her. And I said, well, I don't really, you know, offerings is kind of your ritual. I don't want to take away your ritual and do it. And she said, but that's crazy. She said, you should do offerings. And I said, well, but that's your ritual. And he said, well, I tell you to do offerings. And she was like exasperated a little bit with my politeness because she felt it's not a matter of, um, it, it's, it's what you do. If you do an offering and you mean it, it's okay. Offerings are international. They're universal. They don't belong to one tradition. It's the principle. It's not the, it's not the, if I offer cocoa beans because I bring them back from Mexico and they mean something to me, okay, that's what I offer. But if I'm in, in, in Tibet, you know, I'm going to do rice, right? I'm going to offer rice. Or if I'm in Bali, I'm going to offer flowers. Or if I'm, I don't know, I mean, you know, every, if I'm in the Black Hills of the Lakota Reservation, I'm going to do sage or, or juniper or something. You know, I'm not going to be doing the same offering. The point is the offering. So that is a universal practice. And I think that the appropriation is a topic that we, we take it a bit out of context. It's important to do cleansing. It's important to do offering. It's important to do prayers. It's important to do an altar. 
that belongs everywhere, right? And the indigenous people, what I'm, what I'm hearing from them is do that. You do that. You learn from us the value of calling directions or blessing a room or calling the sun in the morning or, you know, putting flowers on your altar. You learn from us that. And then you do it because it serves you. It serves your life. It helps you. It reminds you of the divine. We're teaching you about the sacred. And you have it. It's not, the sacred doesn't belong to us. And these rituals are universal. They belong to the human family. So I think that, you see, I think that there is a, a worry that we have uh, that is well-funded, but it's a little bit limiting and kind of paralyzing, really, where we stop doing what we want to do out of fear of insulting people, where, in fact, what they want us to do is exactly those rituals. Mm. They want us to do the ritual. And my teacher said, well, if you don't have cocoa beans, what would you, what would you put on the ground? And I said, well, I would put rice or cornmeal or I would put I don't know you know my seeds from my garden and she said oh yeah seeds from your garden is good because it belongs to your land okay okay she said it has to belong to your land and you offer it back to the land so you see it's not like I have to import something necessarily but I can work with the principle of the of the ritual with what's true for me in where I live right Mm -hmm. so I can import palo santo certainly does it grow in my house or does it part of my land? Not really. So, okay. So this is okay to borrow Palo, Palo Santo, but it's also okay to burn the juniper that grows in my, in mm-hmm. my land. Or it's the especially sage. better to be burning something else because Palo Santos is now becoming an endangered tree. So exactly. it's, that's, exactly. that's where yeah. the awareness that's another happen. Story. Yeah, it's yeah. a whole other story. And then what yeah. do you, what's your perspective on blending more traditional practices with practices that make sense for Western culture. Mm-hmm. Fine. Fine. I think it's fine. I think whatever we do, as long as we do it with, with heart, was that it means something for us. A gesture, an empty gesture is an appropriation. A gesture that is filled with spirit, with respect, with connectedness, with, with you know, like connecting with the people we've learned that from and how grateful we are. We can, we can bring this together. I do all kinds of things that are all mixed. You know, I do, I burn sage. Well, sage is not really uh, from the Mazatec tradition of Mexico. I burn copal, which is the Mazatec tradition. And I, I can offer, you know, uh, a mandala on the earth that is my tradition that I do that doesn't belong necessarily to anyone. And that's my altar building to the earth. Well, that's my creation. Okay. And I mix that with other things and I can put four direction, create a medicine wheel, which belongs to other tradition, but also sort of a universal compass of orientation. So it's, it's more a matter of, of doing the things you do because it works for you. And when you invite people into those circles or into those rituals, they, they feel touched and they feel it, it affects them in a, in a good way. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's really what the, what the most important thing is. Mm. If you had to distill some of the most precious nuggets of wisdom that you've received from your teachers over the years, mm. what would you say those nuggets of wisdom have been that they've imparted you with? Um, and if you feel called to actually speak to naming your teachers, I'd also love to, mm-hmm. to um, invite space for that as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Pablo Sanchez really taught me about the tribe, the community, the collective. Uh, you know, he was a Native American and Mexican man and had the uh, the idea, the, 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 the strength of what a council is, right? Sitting in circle was part of his background. And I could feel that when we were doing the work together, there was a, a very strong sense of tribe. And, you know, the tribe of people who I worked with back in the mid-80s is still my best tribe, my community that was still together um, every year, Thanksgiving or different things. And the, co- the collective was really important for Pablo. For Julieta, what I learned a lot is listen to nature. Listen to nature. Uh, listen to the spirits of the place. Listen to um, how they affect you. Um, make your offerings, clean yourself as much as you can ongoingly, um, and have respect. And by that you mean clean yourself spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally? Exactly. Stay clean because she believes that, uh, she believed that um, we are constantly accumulating thoughts, and negative thoughts from ourselves or from interactions or from the social scene that we absorb. And so we have to constantly be in a process of purification, huh? of, uh, of staying, staying as, as, mm-hmm. as clean, uh, meaning unencumbered. Huh? doesn't mean we isolate, but um, sort of circulate uh, our energy constantly. And she was very, um, big, the big lesson from Julieta was uh, respect respect she was about respect respecting uh, a tradition respecting the medicine respecting the guide respecting um them yourself uh, uh, respect 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 of the forces of the universe respect uh, kind of you know treat things with um observation with discernment with thoughtfulness right so that respect for her was like taking things seriously. Doesn't mean she was a very serious woman. She was cracking up all the time. But, but, but being really intentional, really intentful uh, to live one's life with, with a lot of uh, intentionality. Hmm. So. Hmm. And in terms of, of respecting cultures, you know, it seems like reciprocity is a, a big topic and a way that we can offer respect as one of many, many ways that we can show respect. Um, I w- I'd like to just talk about reciprocity with you for a moment and, and, and also on the level of your training program and from like a state of Oregon level, how is that being built into the training, into, you know, the, the actual framework of what's being created right now? Is there, you know, I don't want to call it a business model, but if it is a business model, you know, <clears throat> uh, which there's money involved, it's an economic model. Are there built in mechanisms that are offering some kind of reciprocity in that? Yes, you're bringing the topic that is exactly what we're working on right now, which is a um, concrete reciprocity model instead of reciprocity. What does that look like? You know, it's an empty word. It's a good slogan, you know, and people, uh, a lot of companies have approached me because they want to know how to be in reciprocity. And I'm like, well, if you're going to make millions of dollars, it's going to cost you a lot to be reciprocal. 
I mean, it's not going to be a, a, t- a tip, you know, um, if you really want to be a reciprocal. And so the, uh, the, the topic is what do we, how do we manifest reciprocity? So again, reciprocity is expressed through the respect we have and the name and the naming of the teachers and the lineage. So that's reciprocity right there. It's like looping back, giving back energetically our, our acknowledgement and our respect and our, um, um, appreciation and our uh, admiration maybe also or our um, eagerness to keep learning that's a reciprocity right where we turn back and we keep receiving and we keep uh, giving our attention and our um, uh, willingness to keep learning so that's one aspect of reciprocity I think that is really important for the people in Mexico another aspect which I have been doing on a personal level for many, you know, many years, decades, is supporting people concretely. I support medical bills. I support education of children. I support all kinds of things uh, for various teachers there and their families. So I've been very involved over many years to actually uh, contribute uh, significantly. Um, So they're what they need to do in their life as Options, you know, options and possibilities. If someone gets married, I'll send money for the wedding. If someone gets sick, I'll send money for the care. If a kid wants to go to school and it's a private school outside of the little town, then I'll I'll supply all that, all the rooming and the food and the whatever needed. So I have my personal, um, you know, link to this family, which is you know in this this city. Um, now, what we want to do uh, is actually create a fund that would be managed or totally managed by the local uh, Mazatec people. So I'm in dialogue mm. right now with the daughter of my teacher, who is someone I respect and trust implicitly, to um, create a collective there of people who get along and have honesty and no corruption, which is, you know, not easy to find everywhere when people have scarcity, there's some corruption um, so mm-hmm. sometimes, not always, but sometimes. So we're, we're trying to uh, watch them or, you know, respect their way of handling this collective. And then we would gather a fund and mm-hmm. bring this fund to them to manage exactly the way they see fit. So it's not for us to ask anything. However, I was asking uh, Kat Harrison <clears throat> recently, who's someone I respect and, uh, you know, be friend with and she's been involved in um Kat Harrison was the uh, ex-wife of Terence McKenna for the people who might not know mm-hmm. and uh she's been very involved in World Club way before I was there actually herself with uh, some family of people she's very close to so I seeked her counsel and I reached out to her and I asked what she would think would be the best way to go what, what would she suggest and her first response um well her response was uh, protect the language because the mm. language, the dialect of Mazatec is being lost, is being diluted mm. with time. And this is when a language dies, you know, a whole culture dies. So this is a very, um, it was a very wise advice and I'm really glad she shared that with me. Um, so she has a contact person there whom I'm going to try to, um, I gave that name to my friend, Eugenia, um, uh, who now they are trying to get in touch and see what would it imply to actually um, 
preserve the language? What would that mean? And how to do that? And amongst other things, I'm not saying I'm not imposing that, but um, that was Kat's observation. And I, you know, I think it's a possibly a very good idea from maybe not for the Mazatec, you know, maybe they want to have the kids in school or better healthcare. And, and of course that would, I think everything would be possible, but that's one topic that is uh, important to uh, pay attention to the language. Right. Because every language has words that we don't have in other languages and that points to something. It, it really creates our perceptual view of reality. So I, I, and that's amazing that you guys are doing that work. Well, and the, and the, and the language there is the language of the mushrooms. The Mazatec language is actually the way it's, it's so, um, how could I say? It's the language of the mushroom, just like, you know, Tibetan people pray in a language that is connected with the, with the prayers, right? So the, the Mazatec is the language of the medicine. So it's a very important link mm -hmm. for the medicine to keep expressing itself and have its language spoken out, mm. out loud. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned earlier that, you know, if you're making millions of dollars, that uh, reciprocity is going to cost you something and be expensive, not just a tip. So uh, I'm grateful that I was raised by two parents who really believed in tithing. And they always said, you know, 10 percent of your income or, you know, always offering some level of support that is just as an offering. Mm -hmm. So if you were to put a percentage on it. If for companies and for people looking to get into the space or private practitioners who are holding space, what would you say would, would feel good as in terms of like a financial offering to, to reciprocate to some of these cultures? You know, the market of psilocybin is becoming so big here. Unlike the market of ayahuasca, which doesn't become big because we don't make a synthesized ayahuasca yet. And so we don't have this pharmacology around it and this sort of big, big pharma companies, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that remains a fairly, um, you know, home-based kind of tradition. However, the psilocybin, as we know, is becoming or has become now essentially a, a big pharma. So, you know, I don't know if these people would even be interested in reciprocity. I certainly am talking to some of them because I know them. And so I'm having conversation about what does it mean to actually be in integrity with the initial intention to help? Um, um, yeah, so I don't know exactly how they would want to do that. And, you know, then there is this, um, how could I say, the danger, I'm going to call it that way, the danger of flooding the city with too much money. I mean, that they would, not too much, but I mean, a sense of, abundance that would be a little overwhelming and not adequate to the life mm -hmm. and to preserving the life of the people. I mean, I'm, it's not hard for me to talk about this, but I would, I would, I would want to create a, you know, schools for the children to learn Mazatec. I would want everybody to have good health and maybe to pay salaries of doctors to live there so they could continue to treat the people or I would want all the kids to have, you know, if they want to go study in university to have their college fund paid and their, you know, rooming and, you know, all this being covered. I would like people to have water. I would have people to have roof on their head. I mean, yeah, we can do this kind of things to create a better lifestyle, standard of living. That's totally appropriate. Mm -hmm. And then I think that what would be most appropriate in reciprocity 
is really allowing access to everyone for this treatment and to, um, you know, pay it forward, so, so to speak. It's not so much give it back as, as only mm-hmm. exclusively, but also allowing diverse communities to be educated and to be, for them to have access to this, um, to this tradition and to this approach. And that's for me, a wonderful way to be reciprocal is to pass on the, the spirit of generosity and abundance and, and healing to share it. So it's not so much that the indigenous people want something back as much as they want the healing to spread. This is really what they're after. Um, they're after their healing and their modality and their medicine to reach people out there in the world and to heal. This is really their hope. They don't hope to get something back necessarily or exclusively. Um, so I'm interested in that, in the spreading of this of this. Uh, of this approach. Right? Yeah. I love that. Pay it forward. Yeah. I think that's such a great, a great approach and allow more accessibility to diverse communities to have access to this mm-hmm. because we, we need to heal on a global level. That's right. Everyone, everyone needs to be included in this movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to ask you about where you see the overlap and intersection between indigenous wisdom and modern psychology and how they can be used together in a more complete framework. Um, yeah, and also, you know, in your training program, how much is is modern psychology a part of your training? And do you think that people need to be trained psychologists to work as psilocybin facilitators? I only train people who have been trained in psychology. So my, you know, my angle is one of a psychologist. I'm not saying this is the only angle, of course. There's a lot of uh, people organizing churches and, and beautiful offering of different spiritual contexts. My read of the application of this mushroom tradition, for example, and but that's true for a lot of medicine, is that it opens up the psyche and it opens up to all the suffering and all the wounding and all the situations that have been challenging for us. I mean, when we go in, we face ourselves. And what's inside is not just an exclusively a beautiful spiritual space, although that too, but it's also a lot of suffering. And to deal with the suffering, I think we need to be understanding. We need to be um, having a reference point. We need to have a certain approach. We need to have a certain quality of listening or certain intelligence as far as skills and, and how to connect the dots of our suffering with some patterns of coping or addiction or um, personal belief system that are being entrenched in ourselves because of this wounding. So I think there is a lot of validity in being psychologically educated. It doesn't need to be a master's degree or PhD program or expensive training, but there is a way that I, I think it's important to have a reference point, an orientation, a, mm-hmm. an intelligence of what psychology um, reveal how it reveals itself in those environments of of journeys you know i believe psychology is very much part of what we are dealing with once we open up the pandora's box so to speak of ourselves Mm. now uh the um the the indigenous tradition of the of the of the mazatec for example um, i'll talk about that because that's what i know best they do believe in the personal process of emotional overwhelmed, the emotional clearing, the emotional um, opening that takes place in this journey. So they have a language 
that's not necessarily psychological, but they really understand that when people take mushrooms, they open up to sadness, to grief, to anger, to uh, shame, to guilt, to all these different states that they need to face and they need to um, clear. But the way to clear them is uh, uh, to be aware of them and, and to realize how they got constructed. So for the mass attack, they'd say, well, you know, when you go inside and you face your shame, you have to be with your shame and you have to understand what you're ashamed of and then, and then pray about it and let it dissipate. So they are aware of this, of this place, right? And I think that the Western psychology model then goes one step, not deeper, but, but further, I should say, into how did, that get, how did that get constructed? Where is that shame coming from? So I think that in the Western world, we go into the why. And the, and the indigenous world goes into the how to move it, right? What, did, what is it and how to, how to circulate it and clean yourself. Huh? That's how they see it. And we go into why, how come, and understanding ourselves. We are a lot more interested in self-knowledge than the indigenous people. And that's a cultural thing. It's not good or bad. It's just a different curiosity. They're a lot more curious of the forces and the energies and the, the spirit of the land and the spirituality and their relationship with the divine than we are. But we are more inclined to really want to understand how we are, who we are. That's a psychological investigation, so to speak. And so we bring that together. I like to bring that together, right? I mean... There's value in understanding the purification process and relying on spirits of the outside world to assist us, right? And to ground ourselves in the earth and spirit world and the allies that we have and the ancestors that we have. All this is indigenous kind of angle. And then looking at, you know, okay, so where does that come from? This belief that I'm that I'm nobody. Who told me that? What is the culture that that imprinted in me this kind of belief system and the way we identify that and the way we feel our pain about that or our anger if we were wounded or abused or oppressed, you know, that, that emotion is what helps us claim a new self. So I think that the two can, always, can absolutely come together. And in my trainings, I really talk about that. It's not either or, it's bringing them together. When I'm, <laughs> when I'm in Mexico, you know, I, I talk, you know, <laughs> There's a joke now in the family that when I get there, they all want therapy with me. They all want to sit and, and sort of download and have me help them orient to, you know, really. And I, it's very interesting because I'm, I'm actually not doing very much therapy, but I'm re reorienting them to their spiritual practice and their, um, the words that they believe in terms of love and unity and um, solidarity and uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the human family as one, you know, when they get angry at each other, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reflecting back really, but it's interesting because um, they, they, they have a very um, a sweet, uh, but uh, limiting ignorance of the emotional realm mm -hmm. and the psychological realm. And they, and they appreciate what we're doing and they understand that there is a, um, a territory of uh, interest for them to mm -hmm. understand the, the human experience from our angle. And uh, Julieta always said to me, you know your work. I don't understand your work, but you know your work and you can bring my work into your work. And that's, what, that's what's valuable here. And I said, ah, absolutely. You know, so I think that the weaving together is very possible, very beautiful, actually. 
and uh, is is honoring of these different aspects of of intelligence, you know, and that's, you know, we can move forward with developing um, or integrating psychology into ancient models or weave them together. And it doesn't mean we are losing anything. It's just a new mm -hmm. structure, a new innovation, right? That's what I'm interested mm -hmm. in, in the, in the blend that's not homogenizing, you know, it's, it's, it's really respecting each part, but bringing mm -hmm. them together in a weave. So they can all be seen. Are you open to talking on this podcast about your, the Center for Consciousness Medicine? Sure, sure. I can talk yeah. about it. And so well, how long has that center been around? How long have you been training people? Mm -hmm. uh, is that framework, maybe you could share a little bit about the framework that you teach. And is that framework going to be very much applied to the, the state level training? Yes. So um, in my in my work through the years, people have come with me to Mexico, like you know, for many, many, many years. I've taken hundreds of people to Mexico, and they've wanted to learn my work and that work and my approach and what I was doing with them. And so we have developed trainings for over twenty five years for psychologists um, or people who are psychologically trained uh, to be able to understand the work of working with medicine because they have clients who want to work with medicine and they want to, I mean, I'm not here to uh, condone, you know, use of illegal substances in a place where it's not allowed, but a lot of people do medicine anyway. And I wanted to give the therapist an education and an experience of those places and how to best support their clients. So we've done these trainings for many years um, that are done here in America, but also in Mexico, right. For the practical uh, aspect of it. And uh, so that's what we've done for many years. And now with this movement uh, opening the way it's opening, we've been asked actually uh, and initiated at the same time a, the, launch of, the launching of, a, of an organization called Center for Consciousness Medicine to actually scale and bring this training in a different format which might be more accessible for people actually, and also more efficiently run, meaning we would have these residential uh, trainings um, where people could be allowed to practice, uh, to receive this journey to practice. So that would be possibly in Mexico, we are looking at that possibility. It's a little bit complicated in Mexico, but for sure Jamaica is, a, is an option and we're having a first uh, training in the summer there mm -hmm. and also the Netherlands is of course an option and we're looking at Canada uh, depending on the exemption and the, the way that would be done of course Oregon would become also a, a possibility in 2023 um, so we are uh, we are organizing this um, center to be able to scale those trainings of psychedelic guides and to also offer retreats and to also look at the way we are um, consulting or participating in research. Um, so, for example, I'm, in, I'm part of this research in LA. It's FDA-approved research for COVID-related grief, which I'm um, being part of with other physicians who are uh, DEA and, uh, and FDA approved. Um, and then I'm, so that's part of the research we're doing. And then I'm doing a, a parental grief retreat in Jamaica in March to support parents who have lost a child to illness or suicide or accident. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's in collaboration with other physicians, uh, palliative care physicians, as well as psychologists and other uh, psychedelic guides. And uh, so that's part of the retreats and the research because we're looking at the way this approach can facilitate um, healing. We're not doing, we're not mm-hmm. calling it treatment, but we, we're looking at the uh, psychological implication of such approach. And then so, but mostly what we are looking at and what we are being very uh, eager and excited to do is, is uh, launching those trainings uh, that will be providing uh, the, the expertise that we've built over 25 years um, more in the open field. We've been doing this sort of uh, on a personal level in, the, in a community base, but we've trained uh, over 500 uh, guides worldwide. So over the years, you know, we have quite a, I don't know, a mm. presence, so to speak. And the world of, um, of people, um, you know, who have benefited from this, who are curious about it, or who are interested in supporting such movement is, is really touching. And we are being approached by wonderful CEOs and wealthy people who are knowing that this is the next thing they really want to support. And not from a capital investment uh, angle, but really for, you know... Um, impacting for impact in the world so we are Mm -hmm. very lucky to be uh, respected and seen as experts in the field of training Mm. and so how would people be able to find out about your upcoming training programs especially in in jamaica i know i'm also curious Mm -hmm. and interested Mm -hmm. is that uh, publicly available information yes so people can look into the website which is uh, uh, centerforcm.com Mm-hmm. So centerforcm.com and everything is on there. Uh, there is also a subdivision of Center for Consciousness Medicine, which is called School of Consciousness Medicine, which trains people who wish to become holistic therapists. So people who have never been in the psychological field can follow this training, which really prepares them well to start the, the psychedelic training. So that's a okay. that's an avenue. If someone is a therapist, of course, they don't have to do that. But if someone wants to do that training, then they would have to obtain some psychological training. And that's one option that is offered oh. through the School of Consciousness Medicine. That's so that's a, a, a sort of a first step if needed. Huh? Oh, that's um, wonderful. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll be including all those links in the show notes. I would love to end the conversation by inviting you to... Um, yeah, in part wisdom for the psychedelic leader stepping into the space. You know, when we look back at all the wisdom that your teachers have given you, and you're you're really this interesting nexus point in terms of, you know, now funneling so much of that information and knowledge and wisdom to so many people. And so what's the vision that you're holding for, you know, the psychedelic movement for leaders in the space? And, and what's the best advice and guidance and wisdom that you would love to impart to people? who are holding space for this movement. Thank you. Um, I would like to invite all of us in this movement to keep learning, to keep being curious, to keep looking at what we don't know from communities we don't know very well, very much about, uh, from various indigenous practices that are less familiar um, I'd like to impart that, you know, we are really one and everybody knows that who take psychedelics, you know, knows that we are really one spirit, one family, one organism really with the earth and that we ought to be really united 
and to uh, find peace within ourselves, regardless of the outside world or what it might trigger in us uh, to stay in and remember that, that, that we have peace inside and that's what we stand for. So we can um, come in our life or express from our center the peace that we know we touch inside in those spaces. Um, this, is, this is only what we can do. We can really vibrate what we know is true inside. So that's true in our personal lives. That's true in our collective life. That's true on the society life. That's certainly true on the ecological life. Um, and I really hope that we stay curious and we keep learning from one another and we keep listening to ideas we don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. Even if we think they are really negative or really uh, oppositional to what we stand for, to stay in a spirit of curiosity and to not create opposition, mm -hmm. not out of conflict avoidance, but more in staying in the spirit of oneness. So I hope that even the big pharma I want to continue to be in connection with them, to not alienate, to not create opposition, to not create exclusion. Because the moment I start to do this, I do it to myself. Mm. So I really want to continue being inclusive, being compassionate, being educational, being comparting what I know. So I'm one of the speakers. There's many wonderful wise speakers. And that we can stay curious and stay informing and stay uh, united. Mm. Mm. That is so well said. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for speaking to that. Is there anything else you would like to share before we wrap up this call? Mm. Well, we are in a very uh, specific moment of time here, right? We're doing this interview in a moment where the political situation is really highlighted with the takeover of the capital, um, which will go into history, right, as a moment in this country that we never thought we could see. And I think that really is talking to um, something that is lacking, uh, an absence of love, an absence of care, an absence of, um, that we have to do something that is not rejecting. We have to, we are called to do something that is, in the spirit of heart and compassion and inclusion, mm. right? Because it's very easy to hate in a situation like this and to be scared and to hate and to push away. And I'm really actually finding myself, um, you know, somewhat scared, but also intrigued by what is it that we're not seeing and what is it that we're not listening and what is it that we should um, fold into mm. a place of heart and love. So, I think that that's really what's on our plate as a, as a as 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 a country, but also as a you know as a as as a society at, at large in the world. What what, what is it we are? Um, what is the shadow that expresses outside that is really an invitation to go inside? Mm. So, I hope that that's a um, that's you know a, a place we can stop and really reflect inside ourselves, what is it that's being demonstrated outside mm -hmm. it feels like a just such a large restructuring taking place right now like on such yes. a fundamental level and through mm -hmm. all the upheaval you know through this process for my own life i've you know really realized that there's a ground within my own being when i go within that is 
this solid ground I can stand on through these shifting tides and just hold mm-hmm. the prayer that more and more people connect to that place within themselves because it's so easy to freak out and to completely yeah. lose it, you know, when we look at what's happening and, and yeah, that's just the invitation is for us to come back to find that place and, you know, strip away all the layers and and get right with ourselves. I feel like that's what that's this time is asking of us is like, okay, I need to get right with myself right now. Aside from what everyone else is doing that I think is horrible and disagree with and want to hate, all I can do right now is just get right with myself. And that's, I think, the medicine of our time. You're right. You're right. Just stay, stay in the love. Stay in the love. I mean, just, just only love, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, how can we be loving in this place where we want to hate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an invitation, right? It's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that my, my teacher always used to say, you get the challenge when you're ready for it. So mm-hmm. you get the prueba, you know, the challenge. You get, you get challenged in the medicine and you get challenged in life for you because you need to rise to the occasion of your, of your love, mm. of your certainty of love. If you believe in love, then you're challenged so you can see how, how well aligned with it you are. Mm. I think we are challenged on the, on, on the, on the global level. Yeah. Do you think that this is one of the primary gifts that, psilocybin has to offer us to remind us of the love yeah yeah psilocybin offers us the opportunity to remember that we are completely connected through the mycelial intelligence Mm -hmm. and that we are really um, breathing together and vibrating together and, Mm -hmm. and that we are really telling each other stories good stories and bad stories but we are in constant interaction Mm-hmm. yeah and when everything is like you said when everything is stripped away then what's left you know just love mm-hmm. i mean the center of it the, the glue it's not just an emotion it's the glue that keeps us together and, and keeps the world together and mm-hmm. it's a great creative force right so i feel like this is the you know the reminder or mm-hmm. the teaching the central teaching mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, which is true for all the medicines, right? I mean, it's true for all the medicines. Mm-hmm. It's because, because it's the wisdom of the earth. The medicines are, are just teaching earth wisdom. Mm-hmm. This is not about the medicine, which medicine, which medicine. It's about where it's coming from. And the great mother is, is a loving being. So she teaches us about love, about belonging, about being one with her. And that's what the medicines are communicating. Hmm. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure dropping in with you, Francois. What an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been great. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you. Mm. Blessings. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you've been enjoying the show and you feel inspired to leave me a review on iTunes, that would be so appreciated. If you'd like to be in touch with me, please feel free to reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com, where you can also swipe your playlists for Psychedelic Journeys and Beyond or my free eight-day microdosing course, or feel free to get in touch with me through Instagram at livefreelauraD. I've also been recently making my way over to Clubhouse, and I'll be under the same handle at livefreelauraD. I'm going to leave you with this song called Sing for the Earth by Chad Wilkins. Once again, I'm Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. If we would open up.
What would we hear If we would open our ears What would we hear Of 
creation is groaning and waiting in anticipation for us to awaken all of creation is groaning and waiting in anticipation for us to awaken all of creation is groaning and waiting in anticipation Oh, she sings for you. 